listening to Descent Magazine's Belaboured Podcast, hosted by Sarah Jaffe and Michelle Chen. Hey, Sarah. Hi, Michelle. And welcome to Belaboured Episode 264. In this episode, we are talking to Nation's strike correspondent, Jane McAlevey, about how to keep building your union after you've won the election. This season of Belabored is brought to you in part by the Economic Hardship Reporting Project, as well as our listeners who support us at patreon.com slash belabored. We'd like to thank everyone who has donated to us over the past 10 years. 10 years of this podcast. Can you believe it? We've been bringing you labor news and views from around the world for 10 whole years. And while labor journalism is growing, like so many of you, we haven't had a raise in a while. And we count on what you all can kick in to keep us bringing you this show. We've made it a point to not paywall anything so that our work is accessible to all of the workers we talk to and about whether or not you can afford to pay. So if you can afford to, it really does help us if you can go to patreon.com belabored and sign up to be one of our monthly supporters of our work. And now, because it's our 10th anniversary, we have a limited number of union-made work-won't-love-you-back tote bags for new Patreon subscribers. So sign up to support us now and get one of those, as well as our usual wonderful gifts. And if you work at an organization that would like to sponsor a future Belabored season or would like to advertise on Belabored, you can always contact us at belabored at descentmagazine.org. Thanks for all your support. And now, the news. For the first time in Rutgers University's 257-year history, its faculty across three unions and several campuses are on strike. That is 9,000 faculty members who are members of the American Association of University Professors, AFT, the Rutgers Adjunct Faculty Union, and the American Association of University Professors at the Biomedical and Health Sciences of New Jersey. They have all been on the picket lines. Regular listeners to the show know that several Friends of Belabored are part of this strike, including our recent guest, Rebecca Given, who is the president of Rutgers AAUP-AFT, Donna Murch, who is the president of the New Brunswick chapter of Rutgers AAUP, Todd Wolfson, who is the former president of the Rutgers AAUP, and Marilyn Snyderman of the Center for Innovation in Worker Organizing at Rutgers. And you also might remember a story that I wrote during COVID on Rutgers Union's plan for what Merch called then 21st century industrial unionism. During the pandemic, the unions worked together to try to mitigate the effects of COVID cuts, with tenured faculty standing with lower paid and more precarious parts of the workforce, teaching and otherwise. That principle continues to be on display during this strike, where adjuncts and graduate student workers are demanding to be paid living wages to have less precarious and last-minute working conditions, and, you know, little things like health insurance. Merch described the cross-union struggle in 2020 as, quote, a model for viewing a university not as an ivory tower, but as a work site that influences regional economies, and that this can be an anchor point. I'd always thought of the university as a kind of philosophical and ideological anchor point because of its politics, but now it is becoming a physical anchor point, end quote. A university, in other words, can be a bastion of good jobs and stability for a whole community, the way a factory used to be but only if the best-off workers don't put up with what are basically two-tier systems by other names. If adjuncts who learn what course they'll be teaching a couple weeks before the semester starts teach more than 30% of courses at the university, 
This serves to undermine the conditions of everyone seeking a sustainable career as a professor and also undermine their ability to teach to the best of their, well, ability. It's not surprising, then, that Rutgers faculty are using the framework of bargaining for the common good in making these demands, as some of the key research around the bargaining for the common good strategy is coming out of the Center for Innovation in Worker Organizing there. The demands the unions are making, in other words, improve students' learning conditions and the conditions for the neighborhoods surrounding the university. The unions have been threatened with an injunction to force them back to work as the university is claiming the strike is illegal, but the union disputes that. The Rutgers faculty and staff and a whole bunch of other people's strike has been something that probably most of our listeners are familiar with. But right here, I've got friend of the show, Donna Merch, to uh, tell us what's happening. So Donna, first for our listeners who aren't familiar with you, tell us who you are and what you do, and then um, we'll jump into talking about the strike. Hi, Sarah. It's a pleasure to be here. I love the labor and I listen to it all the time. I am an associate history professor at Rutgers University and New Brunswick chapter president. So the strike is currently in an interesting place, I guess. Tell us what's happening as of the time we're recording, which is Thursday the 20th. So the strike started, I think it's about 10 days ago, and it was incredibly powerful with tens of thousands of people coming out. It is coordinated between three different unions, which is the Rutgers AAUP, faculty grad, postdoc, EOF, non-tenure track contingent lecturers, and TT faculty, with huge numbers of undergraduates and people from all over the state of New Jersey, central labor councils, and even some other parts of the country joining us on the picket lines. It was so powerful. It really shut down Rutgers for five days. The estimates are that 70% of the classes were closed down. And there was a lot of solidarity not crossing picket lines. It wasn't just academic labor. Construction on a building for the Zimmerle Museum was paused after strikers reached out to the construction workers. People Mm -hmm. talked about slowdowns and email. So there was a lot of visible and invisible solidarity. So at the end of that week, the executive council voted on it Friday night. And then the language was drafted several hours after, and they develop a legal framework. That's what it's called. It's not yet a tentative agreement that was voted on by the bargaining committee. It was agreed upon by, you know, those three parties, management, the governor's staff, and the governor actually came to bargaining for two hours last week and the PTLFC and the Rutgers AAUP. So the idea was to pause the strike That's very important. It's suspended, not ended. And that's because there's still many unmet demands. And I can talk about those in detail. But I think, you know, we've had the kind of success that makes it possible to continue to push. There's a huge protest today Mm -hmm. at 1130. Actually, it's, oh, yes, it's, it started about two hours ago. And the Board of Governors are meeting And for a while, you know, depending on which group you talk to in the union, some thought a tentative agreement was possible. Many others did not and did not want a tentative agreement because they want to use the power that they've had on the picket line. So that's where we are. I'd say it's a complex moment. You know, built an enormous amount of power with 9,000 workers on strike plus the sympathy. Mm -hmm. Uh, I would call it like, you know, labor slowdowns and labor you know, withholding labor without having a formal strike. But what's happening now is 
I think that this is my point of view about it. And it's something that I've learned through watching this process with a new left leadership go into bargaining, which is we're confronting state power in multiple ways. The yeah. first way is that because we're under the threat of criminal injunction, and I want to emphasize that public sector strikes in New Jersey are not illegal, yeah. but our president, Jonathan Holloway, has threatened us with an injunction. And so yeah. if he chooses, he can go to the courts and have its two different right. sets of hearings right. and can impose fines if the courts will agree to it. But what's important about that is not just the threat of the injunction, it's the way it changes the dynamic among different segments of the union and our attempt to push for the things that we want. I think this is so important. You know, it's different to read about things and then to yeah. live through them and to see how state pressure can cause tension yeah. within unions, especially industrial union coalitions. So we're thinking through that and standing strong. I think, you know, different groups are mobilized in different ways. I think yeah. the forefront are the Rutgers graduate students who feel that the particular articles that were agreed upon this past Friday did not go far enough and did not provide enough graduate support, yeah. guaranteed funding, and most importantly for them, the what they see as the structural piece, which is the university recognizing grad fellows as TAs and GAs. So this has all these economic implications because if we win our contract, as was proposed last week, the grads are going to get a $10,000 raise in the next four years with the first year starting retroactively. So I think mm. that we're dealing with a kind of bargaining in which first the structure of bargaining itself between economic and non-economic demand. So the economic demands come first in this tradition of bargaining or the structure of bargaining, because I think employers, I'll talk about Rutgers, but it would seem to me that this applies to other industries as well. They prefer to do the economic demands because they see them as the most important and in some ways easier to solve if they're than the questions of autonomy and power. Some of the most important things yeah. that are structural changes won't cost the university anything, but they fight against them. You know, for me, this has yeah. been a lesson in one, how to remain in solidarity, Absolutely. not only through mobilization, but through the bargaining period. I think that the bargaining period for us can be a site of fracture. If it's not conducted with lots of communication and rules, or rule mm -hmm. sounds too disciplinary, but you know, sets of parameters about how we talk to each other, how we write about each other, social media in moments of deep yeah. disagreement. And I've, I've seen this happen at a distance. You know, I'm a Panther historian and I was really a, a participant observer in the movement for black lives. And so I've, I've been a part of it, but not being in the leadership of an organization and watching what's happening at Rutgers, we are having winning an enormous success. Yeah. And even though people are not, not everyone is satisfied with yeah. the legal framework, but this would be an utterly transformative contract for many reasons that I can talk about in detail. But nevertheless, this tension with the threat of criminal injunction and the way that it limits unions power, I'm just feeling it even without an injunction having been issued.
because it hangs over the head of everyone. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Are there like a couple of, of major points that are in what's been agreed to that, that would, that sort of stand out as the transformative parts of this? So what's striking about the legal framework that's currently on the table is that it has multiple interventions around individual job categories. So I'll start with the part-time lecturers. This agreement does two things. Over the course of four years, it raises PTL wages a percentage of 48%. So at the, the base level salary for PTLs, is currently about 5100 but starting retroactively July 1st last year so the difference will be paid between that that wage and the current one it's being raised to 7530 and by the final year of the contract in 2025 it will be 8331 so we are still in striking distance of a fractional appointment so the PTLs I think were excited about that. They were also able to win longer contracts. Currently at Rutgers, they get a new contract every six months. And often they get their contracts before the semester has started, just one or two days before, sometimes a week. So they were able to win universally one or two year contracts as a starting point, including all PTLs. For the TAGA, so for graduate student workers, I'll start just with the economic piece, which is that Roughly, they've won a 33% raise that starts retroactively again in 2021. So their wages will go from 31000 to roughly 35500 and that includes a lump sum. And then from there, it will go to 40000 in the fourth year of the contract. So we think that this will be make the Rutgers graduate workers the highest paid in any public university in the United States, but we haven't run the numbers yet. It's possible that given the fractured nature of the UC agreement, that where UC Berkeley and UCLA received higher wages, we'd have to go look at that and compare it. So I think it was a substantive win on wages. Some of the concerns are whether it's done quickly enough in the early years of the contract so that it will affect graduate students, especially those affected by COVID. In the legal framework, we also want for graduate students the language of five years of funding. But this is a good example that just winning that is huge. But the question is, how will it be determined and implemented? And so much like with pay equity in our 2019 contract, you win things at the bargaining table. And then once you have them, you figure out how to properly implement implement them, sometimes with litigation. This is not of our own choosing, these circumstances. These are the circumstances that we confront. In addition to that, we want language about graduate fellowships, recipients being recognized as part of our bargaining unit. And this is one of the big things that's being protested today is figuring out what that means and how the language is written and what it means that the fellowship recipients will have wages currently almost $10,000 less than the wages that are won. EOF counselors, who are very important that work with low-income undergraduates of color, they won a serious wage increase that I think the total is roughly around 20%. One of the things that's also in the contract that I think is really special is that we decided for the first year when we did raises 
to use the aggregate of all faculty. So this benefits the lowest paid workers the most. So those are big wins. For postdocs, we won across the board in four years, about a 22, 23% increase. And there are still, the non-economic demands still remain. Um, and those are a big part of what's being discussed this week. There's a discussion going on in the union. Should we simply suspend the strike, continue to, or fight for a tentative agreement, or should we go back on strike? And there's a huge portion of people that want to go back on strike. So that's basically what's going on. And something tells me we'll have much more in the future on this podcast about the Rutgers unions. Solidarity to all. Back when the COVID lockdowns had shut down restaurant dining across many cities, delivery workers emerged as a prominent essential workforce, and many unemployed people flocked to apps like DoorDash as a way to scrape by in the pandemic hobbled economy. But even though the lockdowns are over now, app-based workers are still struggling for respect and recognition. Georgetown University's Tech and Society program has come out with a new report that examines the working conditions of DoorDash workers in the D.C. area. The findings confirmed what you probably already suspected. The job is poorly paid and often very dangerous. According to the workers surveyed, 51% of workers felt unsafe on the job, 41% experienced assault or harassment on the job, 23% were in traffic collisions on the job. The surveys also revealed the degree to which working for one of these apps is just a total time suck, because a lot of the time they spend on delivery duty does not actually involve delivering anything. Rather, they are waiting to be assigned jobs and not getting paid in the process. The survey revealed that workers are not compensated for the time they spend waiting for jobs, and some spend half of their work time engaged in unpaid waiting. I spoke to the author of the report, Katie Wells, about what DoorDash workers' experiences tell us about these so-called gig jobs and what policymakers can do to provide relief. So this study came out of an earlier study in which we followed 40 Uber drivers for five years as they moved on and off the app. And when the pandemic hit, a lot of those workers understandably moved to instant food delivery. They did that because they were worried about their exposures to the pandemic or because they couldn't get any more passengers. And I wanted to ask questions again about, well, what kind of a job is this? Does it have similar kind of conditions as ride hail work? Or was this kind of app-based work really as wonderful as American media celebrated? These essential workers that were saving restaurants, they were saving cities, they were saving isolated you know, inhabitants who couldn't care for themselves during the COVID pandemic. So sort of in contrast to, to the parade of celebrities from Gwyneth Paltrow and Cookie Monster who celebrated these services, and the tens of millions of Americans that signed up, we found something sort of very different than the story that these companies have sold and these celebrities have celebrated. This instant delivery industry really exacerbates existing racial and economic inequalities. We followed 41 instant delivery workers in the D.C. area over the last year, and we found that the delivery industry poses risks to worker health and safety in ways that we had not realized. We found that wages for instant delivery workers are unpredictable and unclear. 
And also, and I think this was most surprising for us, the instant delivery industry requires at least two forms of unpaid work. And by unpaid work, I mean that workers aren't compensated for the time they spend waiting on the job, and they also aren't compensated for the data that they must produce on the job. As a result of these findings, we have a series of recommendations for our local policymakers to try to consider what we need to do to actually ensure that the labor standards that DC has prided itself on get enacted. Can you just explain for people who aren't that familiar with this kind of business model, what makes app-based work different or similar to regular old jobs, or why are they not classified as employees officially? Yes. In the U.S., app-based workers are generally not classified as W-2 employees the way someone working at McDonald's, Walmart, Gap, Applebee's would be even though their jobs are very, very similar in that they're algorithmically mediated in terms of, you know, if you sign up to work at Office Max, like I did, the schedule that I would be given would be both unpredictable and it would be determined in large part by a computer algorithm. Today's workers are often struggling to try to find some kind of control in their lives so that they don't have to live by that unpredictable schedule. And so these app-based workplaces often offer the promise or the possibility of flexibility and flexible schedules. And so workers often turn to it as they try to take care of their families. It's a way to make sure that you're home, you know, generally when your kids get off school or you can take your dad to his dialysis. So really sort of it's, we see platforms as a solution to the crisis of care in the U.S. And these instant food delivery platforms are no exception. They help people try to make, or they try to help people make ends meet within the constraints of sort of their care responsibilities. So in terms of the the issue of how these workers are classified, I mean, is one of your recommendations that they should be systematically reclassified as official employees? Yes, and And there's actually... Yes, and there's great groundwork. DC is really lucky in that way that we, what's really great about DC is we already have the ABC test in place for the construction trades industry, and this helps to limit wage theft and misclassification. And one of the recommendations we have is to simply expand that to all workplaces within DC, which would help to alleviate this misclassification that's rampant in the instant food delivery industry. Do you want to talk a little bit about what work might look like if it were better regulated for these workers? I mean, there is nothing inherently dishonorable about food delivery, and it's not new, right? Pizza delivery, milk delivery, even where I grew up in Northeast Ohio, we had frozen meal delivery. The problem is the conditions under which that food delivery is happening. Um, and the frequency with which is happening. We do have a lot of concerns given that the planet is on fire and that we are seeing a lot of workers deliver a single burrito across town in a gas-powered vehicle. It doesn't make sense both on a societal level, like at a city scale, but also on an individual worker level. We very much are worried, you know, about the impacts of this industry. And so This work, it can be treated well. It doesn't need to be exploitative in nature. It can be regulated. It can be well paid. And there can be workers' compensation associated with it. We know that because a lot of these companies operate in other countries that require them to provide those very same protections that are a miss here. 
Recently, there's a paper put out by uh, Vina Duval and her colleagues looking at sort of algorithmic wage discrimination. Did you find something similar in terms of how delivery drivers are compensated? Because they were looking at, I think, ride hail. Ride hail. No, absolutely. And we absolutely. I mean, the unpredictability of this and the threat and the worry that workers have about their data patterns being used against them is pervasive, but it's also something we can't disprove or prove. And it's something, you know, Vina Duval is sort of rightly points out when she says that, look, we know, even if we can't figure out exactly what these companies are collecting from workers, we can follow the commodity chain of data upwards to see that there are companies like Argyle, which are now data labor brokers selling the records of 40 million gig workers. So we know some kind of third party or anonymization process is happening with these workers' data, and they're not compensated for it. Yeah, their data is becoming, uh, I mean, arguably perhaps more valuable than the labor that they actually perform. Or maybe it right? always was, right? I mean, they yeah. always produced more than a service called ride hail or delivery. And this is also why we very much worry that a lot of workers are extremely, for a single worker, not getting you know, a job offer for an hour might actually be right unprofitable for them, but that hour might be really profitable to the company because they have their phone on, they have the app running, and they're producing all kinds of data about traffic, it, speed, their ability to wait, things like that. Yeah. Yeah. And, and even when they, when workers reject a job, right, they're still feeding yeah, into da the data. Yeah. Absolutely. And we don't know, you know, I mean, Vina raises a question you know, in her piece about whether or not that data could ever be used against workers in other contexts. Could it be used against somebody in a rental application someday, right? Are you concerned that um, this emphasis on delivery workers as essential workers is kind of fading now that, you know, there's sort of this collective amnesia around the pandemic? And I don't think I'm concerned that it is fading. I think it has faded. But I do think that there was a moment in which it allowed people to think otherwise. And I think there was, I think there were several weeks where I was pulling out newspaper article after newspaper article where I couldn't believe that working class people were on the front cover of all these newspaper sections because they were deemed essential and their important role in sort of making our cities operate was recognized. And that felt exciting for a moment, right? So I don't want to discount the fact that it has, you know, I think these waves, they come and they go and they've, it doesn't mean it won't return, right? I mean, look what just happened at Rutgers. That was Katie Wells of Georgetown University, author of a new report about DoorDash workers. I am back in England as I record this, where the strike wave continues apace, and all attention has been on the National Health Service, where rank-and-file nurses on the Royal College of Nursing's first-ever strike have just voted down the latest pay offer from the government, despite the union leadership's recommendation to accept. The 5% raise they were being offered, with inflation still, well, much higher than 5%, was insufficient. The RCN's leadership had originally called for a 19% increase to make up for cuts and givebacks and all of the uh, inflation-related increases in the cost of living. Rank-and-file organizing has been going strong, building very quickly what was not much of a fighting union into something that is willing to challenge both the leadership of the union and, more importantly, perhaps the leadership of the NHS itself to do better by the workers. More strikes will follow, with nurses out from April 30th to May 2nd. 
A London nurse told Navarra Media, quote, I don't think it's fair and the government has more to offer us. When this started, they told us we wouldn't get more than 3%, but now suddenly we've got 5%. They can afford to give us more, end quote. And meanwhile, the NHS's junior doctors have joined the strike wave. Dan Zahidi, one of those striking doctors, wrote in Tribune, quote, Despite giving the health secretary several chances to meet with us again and offering to call off the strikes if he could commit to a reasonable offer which we could put back to our members, Mr. Barclay unfortunately left us with no alternative. Junior doctors have faced some of the harshest pay cuts in the public sector, with our real terms pay falling by over 26% since 2008. We are not asking for a rise. We're simply demanding a reversal of these pay cuts. No doctor is worth over a quarter less than their counterpart 15 years ago. If anything, our work has been even more challenging due to understaffed and overstretched services, end quote. He noted that his pay, like that of many other doctors in the service, comes out to just 14 pounds an hour. Hundreds of patients are dying unnecessarily each week without strikes, millions are on waiting lists for operations, and over 130,000 staff vacancies exist across the health service. That means that the service is, well, constantly understaffed. Executives and politicians complaining about staffing levels when workers make demands and go on strike seem unconcerned with the staffing levels day in and day out. Coordinated action by the junior doctors and the nurses is possible, perhaps we could even say likely, as the conservative government seems intent on breaking the union's Thatcher style. But it's probably worth someone reminding Rishi Sunak that Margaret Thatcher had the sense to divide and conquer the unions, isolating the miners from the others in order to crush them first. When Thatcher made the mistake of antagonizing everyone all at once with the poll tax, that actually brought down her government. A hospital trust chief executive told The Guardian that more strikes would be a disaster, complaining, quote, junior doctors are already striking. If you have these two staff groups still in dispute, that will be catastrophic because doctors and nurses pretty much are the NHS workforce. If they aren't available, you have no health service. How can you run a health service without nurses and junior doctors? End quote. Maybe they should have thought of that sooner before cutting their pay by 26%. Last month, a Planned Parenthood nurse in Minnesota, Grace Larson, was fired after serving on the bargaining committee of her union for months. SEIU Healthcare Minnesota and Iowa, the union representing the workers at Planned Parenthood North Central States, has filed an unfair labor practice charge against Planned Parenthood, alleging that Larson, quote, was fired in retaliation for her leadership role in the union, that PPNCS has sought to intimidate the entire elected union bargaining team through extreme and unjustified discipline, and that PPNCS unlawfully surveilled private, non-work communications among elected union bargaining team members, unquote. The Iowa Capital Dispatch reported in late March that in addition to Larson being fired, another 11 bargaining team members, quote, have received final written warnings, which say they can be terminated immediately if they violate any other policy, unquote. Larson's firing came amid an eruption of workplace conflict in which one worker slapped a coworker. Planned Parenthood management reportedly also accessed a group chat to spy on the bargaining team's communications with the rest of staff. And Larson said that she and other coworkers were placed under investigation. And she was terminated shortly after she returned from a brief leave, reportedly due to her failure to, quote, report a breach of confidentiality, unquote. It's unclear what Planned Parenthood meant by that. 
SEIU Healthcare Minnesota and Iowa has unionized about 450 planned parenthood workers across Minnesota, Iowa, Nebraska, North Dakota, and South Dakota, covering organizers, nurses, and other clinic staff at 28 facilities. The workers voted overwhelmingly to unionize last year, just as as the Supreme Court was preparing to bring down the axe on Roe v. Wade thus setting off a wave of abortion bans and severe restrictions on access to reproductive health care across the country. In the Midwest, abortion access is particularly limited. Shortly after the Planned Parenthood workers unionized, South Dakota's so-called trigger law went into effect, effectively banning abortion outright across the state. Abortion remains legal until about 22 weeks since one's last menstrual period in Iowa and North Dakota, while Minnesota's Supreme Court has recognized a broad right to abortion in the state's constitution. Healthcare providers like Planned Parenthood are finding themselves legally and politically embattled, while their workers are increasingly restive about their arduous working conditions. Belabored spoke with Grace Larson last year about the struggle to form a union in the face of employer opposition. The irony of Planned Parenthood, an organization that claims to be on the front lines of reproductive justice and a longtime champion of feminism, engaging in such blatant anti-union politics is not lost on the workers. They organized a rally last week in Minneapolis to demand that Planned Parenthood cease union busting and reinstate Larson. This week, they announced that they set a deadline of next Monday for Planned Parenthood to take action on their demands. If the employer fails to do so, they plan to march to the Capitol personally to pressure PPNCS CEO Ruth Richardson, who is also a third-term state senator representing Mendota Heights. Adding another layer of irony, Richardson was elected with the support of organized labor, including SEIU. Larson said in a statement, quote, it's imperative to remember that abortion rights are workers' rights. We cannot have one without the other. We need to unite these causes because we cannot afford to be divisive at this historical moment, unquote. For its part, Planned Parenthood has insisted that it believes in bargaining in good faith. As the battle over reproductive justice ramps up across the country, we'll see whether Planned Parenthood as an employer can live up to its progressive politics in the workplace. You're listening to Belabored, a Descent Magazine podcast. Links to articles mentioned in this episode may be found at descentmagazine.org. If you're a fan of Belabored, you'll almost certainly like Macrodose, a weekly podcast hosted by James Meadway, covering all things economic in a convenient 15-minute package with analysis you need to make sense of the day's events. In the last few weeks, Macrodose has covered the surge in prices, worker resistance, the banking crisis, the debt crisis in the global south, bringing a critical political economy eye to the week's top stories. And for subscribers, Macrodose Extra has full-length, hour-long interviews going in-depth with leading thinkers like Yanis Varoufakis, Gargi Bhattacharya, Richard Wolff, and me. Macrodose drops every Wednesday morning at patreon.com or wherever you get your podcasts. This week's guest needs no introduction, but just in case this really is your first time listening to anything about the labor movement... Jane McAlevey is a longtime organizer and organizing theorist, author and co-author of several books and many reports and articles on the art of worker organizing, plus the founder of the massively popular online trainings Organizing for Power, supported by the Rosa Luxemburg Stiftung. Her newest book, co-authored with Abby Lawler, is Rules to Win By, Power and Participation in Union Negotiations, and it is both a guide to and study of the collective bargaining process, with case studies from around the world where workers won big using big, open, democratic bargaining tactics and a willingness to go on strike. 
She joined us once again to talk about the book and what it means for today's organizers. Before we sort of dive into the nuts and bolts of your book and methods, broadly, for people who have absolutely zero experience with collective bargaining, how would you explain it? You know, what we think of as a regular, part of what's good about it is it's a routinized, semi-regular, structured process whereby workers collectively through their union sit down at a negotiations table of some kind with their employers to create policy for the workplace. And at the most simple level, it's about policymaking in the workplace to shift it from a dictatorship to a place where people actually have some say over what the basic rules are, not just of pay, but importantly over general terms and conditions of work from hours to vacations to health and safety to that's collective bargaining at the broadest sort of level. And then as we know, there are ways that it's typically been practiced. And there are some ways that some of us are trying to enable it to be practiced much more differently. So right now we're in this interesting moment in the U.S. where we've seen a lot of unions win surprising victories at the National Labor Relations Board elections level, but are really struggling to get to first contracts, particularly thinking about Starbucks and Amazon, but also plenty of others, and especially at some of these high turnover workplaces I feel like it's really important to talk about the bargaining table now. So I wonder if you could talk a little bit about how this phase of the struggle is sort of where inspiring campaigns can often go to die. Yeah. I mean, I think a couple of things, and I think it's really important to keep the conversation grounded sort of in history in ways that I know we both like to. You know, the current attention that we're getting on the struggle to get to a first contract with the Starbucks, with the exciting Starbucks campaign, and with some of the Amazon, Trader Joe's, Apple, et cetera, um, some of these sort of newer retail, front of the house kind of store workers, et cetera. It's just, it's not new. There's nothing new about it. I mean, the statistics on how many workers in the, if we're talking about the United States, on how many workers in the United States have been able to eke out a win through a national labor relations board election process and go on to never actually have a union contract is there's quite a long history to that. I mean, Kate Brock from Brentford's research was the best done, but the gap between how many workers actually ever get a first contract or a first collective agreement versus merely win a hard fought election and everything falls apart after that. It's pretty, it's a pretty long history here. And it ties with kind of a 50 year history of the growth of the union busting industry, right? What they call the union avoidance industry. And in you know, in several of my books, I trace the line following our inability to win first contracts to our inability to win elections to the growth of the union busting industry. But it's just to say there is a lot of talk right now about how this is some new dynamic and it's not new. It's painfully not new. So the question is, what are the kinds of things that people, what's the, what are the kind of approaches that people need to take to fight to even get to the first contract negotiation, and then, by the way, break it into three battles for the last 40, 50 years. One is you win an election. If you do, that's amazing. Congratulations, given the you know how badly the deck is stacked against you. Second is, can you actually get to the negotiations? Can you force the employer to get to the negotiations table because there's so many legal objections filed? And then thirdly, once you get to that table, what kind of contract can you actually achieve? It's almost three phases. Um, just for workers who are forming new unions. And since that's most of what I've done for my life was first 
you know, in organizing campaigns and first contracts, <laughs> I feel like that's why I'm particularly acutely aware that this is not a new dynamic, right? So, and yes, I've done successful negotiations. Yes, I've had the pleasure of big tables with lots of workers who had already been in the union, but I've cut my teeth on all new organizing and then first contracts. The employer class has always known that they get at least two bites at the apple, if not the third one I'm describing now. Um, meaning if they if they fail spending millions and millions of dollars to stop workers from exercising their free right to choose to form a union, the employers know that they're not going to let up at all and they're going to try to destroy the union in the next phase. I think I want to start by saying not enough trade unionists on our side, not enough organizers explain that to workers up front. Right. So there's this sort of immediate, like what we call inoculation, and even yeah. better, like separation. Like how do you prepare workers going into a unionization campaign for the fact that when you win that election and you have that first euphoria, celebrate, have a good night, um, yeah. take a nap, uh, but that is nowhere near the end of the fight. So one thing that I see missing right now, because there's so much new energy, and this gets to the question a little bit of experience, right, in our work, is how much are we preparing people for not being let down when they don't automatically get to the negotiations table? Like as, a, as an organizer, I'm obsessed with how do we get people ready for each stage of these fights, right? right. So it, it's not new. And the more we prepare people to understand that winning the election is just like a step in a process for you and your coworkers to then actually succeed. And, and that's the third phase, the word succeed, succeed in the collective bargaining process and win a life-changing contract. Those are still happening as we know. And all we need to do is look at, I mean, it wasn't the first contract, but Los Angeles mm-hmm. with Local 99 just several weeks ago is yeah. an example of a life-changing contract. A 30% raise for low-wage workers is massive, right? The Canadians I was just talking to about about the maritime provinces where they had a 26,000 worker strike for the first time in, you know, over a quarter of a century uh, went into a strike and said the same thing. We're going to make we're going to make huge demands for the lowest wage workers. We're going to convert workers at 80 percent who have been held at 80 percent hours and never flipped a full time. They flipped thousands of them to full time and got 15 percent raises on top. The collective bargaining process really is still working for a lot of workers. It's what's the power behind it? And then what are the moves that you're doing? So for the for the new energy coming into it, I think that what people have to be seriously focused on is something that, you know, I think someone named Bob Mullenkamp, who comes out of the union that trained me out of 1199, historically, he was the organizing director in the 60s and 70s and 80s. And something that he, you know, is famously quoted as saying, which is the organizing never stops. I mean, period. And once you form a union, I think I've had plenty of experience, including in one of the case studies I write about. And I and I drew it out on purpose because I kept hearing people say, oh, this never happens. They never sued the labor board for collusion with the union on top of the union. I'm like, really? Okay, I'm going to put that in chapter one, because in many of the campaigns that I've run, the labor board has been sued as aiding and abetting the workers somehow, and they've forced our trial into some other region. I mean, there's just, none of these things are new. The question is, what are we, what do we do about it? How do you prepare for it? And that's, that's, I think that we're, what we're trying to address in this entire book is what are the kinds of things you have to do to fight to get to that table? And some of it is in the belief and the principles and the descriptions of what the collective bargaining process is going to be. And if that sounds obtuse, I mean raising workers' expectations that they themselves will have 100% 
participation and say over their negotiations and participation in them. Like that, that concept that it isn't that you win the election and then you hand it over to some lawyers who go off and sign gag orders and try and go off and negotiate a contract, like just right there, there's a huge distinction in approach. And what I'm arguing in part in the book is the approach to collective bargaining has a lot to do with whether or not you even get to the table. Right. Right. And so spoiler alert in the latest book, which is called Rules to Win By, you expand on this thing that you've written about elsewhere, which is the need for these big, open, democratic bargaining processes in order to win strong contracts. So can you lay out the case for bringing as many workers as possible to the bargaining table? Yeah, um, we win more and we build stronger organizations. I mean, at a simple level, those two things really matter. And I'm going to I'm going to go out on a bit of a limb, which I'm writing about this, but I'm going out on a bit of a limb here, but I believe it to be true. I mean, we just, I don't think that the second part I said is insignificant at all. That we win better contracts, that was one clause, and that we build stronger organizations by using these methods equally matter to me. If you look at three cities as a comparison, Los Angeles, Chicago, and New York City, in two of those three cities in the last several years, we've had repeated strikes that were what we call supermajority massive strikes led by education workers who saw their job as educating not just the rank and file members, but educating the whole of the working class about what's happening in this country, that there is money to fund, you know, social services, not just education, right? The approach was an approach to educating an entire working class base in a city. And so as a result of that, we built really strong organizations their political programs expanded and became really strong. And they were able to play decisive roles in putting a Black woman named Karen Bass over the finish line against the real estate industry in Los Angeles recently, and now Brandon Johnson in Chicago. And if you look at New York City, where we have pretty retrograde teachers union, frankly, that has been more interested in squelching internal participation and dissent, um, and a lot less interested in have you do the kind of fundamental work that's been happening in Los Angeles and Chicago. Thus, they've never gone on strike. They've never seen their job as educating the whole of the New York City working class about what's at stake. And we got a cop as the mayor, right? I mean, we have a cop who is dismantling (laughs) the city. So I really think that when the approach is transparent and big and open, that's the language I've been using most of my adult life. Like when I'm looking at negotiations, our is that are the people in charge, that could be elected leaders, just as much as staff, you know, who shut down access to negotiations. So are the people in charge, elected full-time, not whoever they are, are they approaching negotiations with full transparency? Like they're going to tell every single worker what goes on in the room. That's assuming the room is still closed. Are they going to be fully transparent? That's one question. Second is, are they going to elect a big committee? And the argument for electing a big committee is several. I'm going to come back to each piece, but I'm going to come back to big in a minute. But so the second question is, do they elect a big committee? And then the third is, you know, do you open up negotiations? And I want to be very clear, as we are in the book, when I say open, I don't mean open to the whole world. I mean, open to the wor- all the workers covered by the proposed collective agreement. So on big, you know, this goes towards how do we build stronger, better organizations that elect 
uh, you know, a Brandon Johnson and a Karen Bass versus an Eric Adams, um, meaning potentially great mayors as opposed to absolutely decisively horrible ones, for example. At the very least, a um, teacher versus a cop. Yeah. Um, you know, who's bringing out robot dogs and whatever else he's doing this week. Part of what the argument in the book is, is that it's in, for certainly for the Starbucks, the Amazons, the Trader Joes, for the, for the newly organizing, what I always understood the importance of the first contract process to be was teaching governance skills. Mm. Like literally you go from campaign skills to governing. Like what are the rules of our workplace? What's the fairest way that we should govern our workplace? What's the best outcome we can get for our students, our patients, our residents, our consumers of frankly, you know, I get way better delivery service from UPS drivers than I do from FedEx, right? A union buster versus a union. Like one throws it out in the rain, that's FedEx because the driver's in a hurry and unpaid. And one delivers it to your door and tucks it under something to make sure it doesn't get wet. Like at every level, whatever the end product is, the process of big negotiations allows good workers, and most workers are, to engage in a kind of robust process to learn what it takes to actually change production decisions, right? So if the campaign is about winning, the right to do that, good negotiations are about how workers learn to collectivize their sharp understandings of how each piece of the workplace works, and then come together to make it a more fair and better workplace, and one that also works better for whoever receives the benefits of what these workers do. And they learn to contend with management, and they learn and struggle plenty, usually not in front of the employer, hopefully, but they struggle plenty, right, in our private caucus time with why should an emergency department, for for sake of argument, get more money than a general medical surgical unit if it's a hospital? Like, there's really great learning and solidarity building and governing power developing Mm -hmm. in the process of doing contract bargaining when you elect a really big representative committee, by which I mean one of every kind of worker, at least, If they're shift workers, one of every kind of worker across every shift, because night shift workers have a different experience in a lot of workplaces than a day shift worker. And it's better bargaining because you back check the employer at every second. I mean, when you've got five people and a lawyer and a gag rule and a closed door and management starts saying outrageous things about whatever, how something works on one shift versus another, it's not humanly possible that five people can possibly effectively challenge the kind of lies the boss would be telling at the table. At that moment, A, they won't even know them, right? And then B, they couldn't possibly know them all. So the big committee part, which is different than transparent, the big committee is, this is a this is a laboratory for teaching everyday workers how to govern and what good policymaking means. And they got a way better chance at creating good policy and understanding policymaking than they do in the halls of Congress, for God's sakes, right? Given <laughs> campaign finance. So it's really about where they learn the self-confidence that they don't just do their jobs well, but they can actually run their entire workplace better than a set of -of out-of-touch managers who are taking orders from profit-centered top people. And then the open just extends the concept. The actual negotiations room, it's the only place under U.S. labor law where workers sit as legal equals to management. And so for my whole life, I was taught by my mentors at 1199 New England, like, why would we deny workers from sitting in the one space under law where they can say basically whatever they want to their employer across the table and they sit as legal equals? 
I mean, just the experience of facing down the boss is, I hate the word empowering, but it is <laughs> it's kind of the right word for it. Definitely. In confidence building, it's empowering and it's confidence building. Like you sit and strip away the aura that any of those managers that you regularly have to take orders from are any smarter than you at all, if not, frankly, a lot less smarter by the kind of questions that we're driving at them across the table. So that builds more class confidence and class confidence is crucial to everything we have to do, like everything, right? From winning civil elections to storming barricades to winning great contracts and changing public policy. When the working class feels confident in who they are, and what their demands are, and that they stand a chance to win them, that's when things get interesting. And that's what the book is trying to gin up the idea that Mm -hmm. there's been a longstanding phrase in the labor movement that has always grinded on me a little bit, which is, you know, you win your contract away from the table. Not quite, not quite, I'm arguing. You win it at the table and away from the table, both. Mm -hmm right? Because one is a learning lab for governing and policymaking. And why aren't we teaching so many more workers how to do that? Because we're desperate for it. Yeah. I had highlighted a line from the book that said the last thing most management wants to do, even in negotiations with workers' representatives, is to be required to act as if the workers matter. For one, that is right. And for two, you know, it's not possible to tell every story, but there's just endless stories of where through a very careful set of questions asked that workers generally will generate because they're very engaged in the, in the way we're talking about the collective bargaining process. It's a very disciplined process. You know, the first thing that traditional position holders and unions ask me, no, I didn't say leaders, position holders and unions usually say to me, well, how do you control the room? And my first response is always a smile. And I say, well, my job is not to control workers, actually, it's to enable them. But once I get past that comment, I say, it's never in my life happened ever. And this is True statement of over 25 years of negotiations, never once in my entire life had a worker break ranks when management was in the room because yeah. they take it really like when they are given the responsibility to walk into that room and they realize, oh, wow, this is a this is serious. Like this is a real thing here. Like we're going to create workplace policy. And so they're very involved. They pass notes. They do all sorts of stuff. We're frequently in caucus time. We're having prep sessions. We're briefing and debriefing what happened in the session. The whole thing is about, you know, a a huge learning lab that enables people to then go on to make demands on their city council or their town council or whatever it's going to be, their state legislature, and and demand similar policy, but play it out differently. And let's put together a committee. And how do we do that? And I will tell you in the first version of the book that didn't survive peer review, the whole closing chapter was how I would have run the campaign for Build Back Better. And I talked about creating big and open committees across unions. Someone said to me recently, you should push that somewhere. I was like, oh yeah, that's a good idea. I have all these things I call on the cutting room floor that like never made it somewhere. Yeah, Yeah, you pitch those articles, man. (laughs) Yeah. So there's a set of questions. Like I know there's a moment we're going to call him the chief financial officer. And boy, do they hate whatever their title is. Could be VP, could be whatever. Fuba of money. When we haul them in, and that's always a session that I make sure we have packed because we've always been listening to the shareholder calls or to whatever the sector is. We've always had someone off listening to what they're saying to the people who want to hear that they're making money. And then they come in and cry poverty to us. And, you know, and then we set a bunch of the smarter workers up who are good at math to ask a series of questions that we've pre-thought. And the indignity management feels and having to respond to workers' questions at the table about high finances of a corporation is an amazing process. 
And then to realize that they've been lying the whole time, right, to the workers about how much money they have is repeat process that I, I do in every negotiations and I teach negotiators to do. And you can do it across the board, whatever the workforce is, whatever the topic is, uh, managers don't want to have to come in that room. They certainly don't want to have to answer questions. They try to have their union busting labor lawyer be the one to ask it, but the labor lawyer can't answer them all. They just can't. So if you're really good at like, what are the questions you're going to ask about the production process, quote unquote, it's going to force line managers to start answering and it's going to get really interesting, really fast. And the workers know they're smarter than a lot of those line managers. So yeah, it's a, it's a fabulous process. Yeah. To return to the question of management's favorite tactic, which is to delay the whole process, right? In a recent article, I noticed that the average time to bargain a first contract in the US is 465 days. So that is a year and 100 days. And yet these days, the median job tenure in all jobs is 4.1 years. And for workers in food service, it's 1.6 years. Amazon's warehouse turnover, of course, has been clocked at 150% in a single year. So that right there answers why management is delaying. What I guess we're dealing with now is how do we speed them up? Yeah, a lot of people raise two issues about organizing in general, right? Because this is this approach to negotiations is yeah. essentially just an extension of an organizing argument. And what people say is, oh God, organizing takes so long, right? That's a common refrain. And my answer has always been, not, not if you're doing it well, it doesn't. Sorry, <laughs> like it doesn't. When we approach the organizing process with a plan, a credible plan to win, a set of methods, things we know that workers need to learn in order to then themselves govern well. It just doesn't take that long. So two, the high turnover argument is one that's come up a lot lately. And I feel, to be honest, like it's a bit of an excuse about how not to do the work well, mm -hmm. um, because I'm, I'm hearing it a lot. And for starters, Nursing homes are high turnover. I mean, yeah. academic mm -hmm. academics say to me, well, we're only here for five years. And I'm like, Jesus Christ, that's longer than most workers. That's way longer than the average yeah. person in a nursing home or a hospital, right? So literally the, the longer than most workers. Yeah. So it's like you can get in. I mean, I think it's interesting just to tease out. Everyone's practically in a high turn. The, the, the great quit. The no, great exactly. quit. People hate their jobs. I believe right. Sarah Jaffe knows that. Like no. everyone... <laughs> is leaving every job they have as fast as they can because they are crap jobs for the most part, except my Teamster drivers, for example, who I've known for 10 years, right? Who has a great job. He's one of the ones with full-time and, and a great contract versus the 65% part-timers now who we hope they go fix. But anyway, so I, I think the truth is, I mean, I joked in Amazon, it's like, People say it's 100% turnover. Let's just break that down for a minute. It's not It's not really 100% turnover. I mean, even at JFK 8, there have been workers there for several years, like three to four years. So now you could say, and I call it dog years. Like I say, if you're an Amazon worker and you've been in your facility for three years, that's yeah. like a registered nurse at year 15. In right. terms of like what you know about the facility and how much respect you've earned, it's real. The dynamic of organic leaders, like all the kinds of things that we talk about in traditional campaigning, at least at the warehouse level, I think still apply. They certainly apply it at a you know graduate worker fight or academic fight. Now, if you're talking about flipping fast food burgers, I think we are in a different category. But that's that's not what we've seen at Starbucks, right? There's actually multi-year tenure among a lot of those baristas, which I'm equally fascinated by. Yes, there's the college kids wanting to come in and go, or whoever it is, you know. So there are a set of workers in all of these newly organizing groups who really have been there for some time. 
versus the new ones. And I think it, it's important to start there. And then if you do the work, if you've started from day one to build an approach that says, we're going to have to get the community. And when I say that, we're going to have to come back and back and asterisk that like the community isn't like a social disease, like who in the community, why, based on what theory of power, who can move who, et cetera. But if you make a plan that's going to go get you the kind of allies that you need, and you know from day one that you're going to face a campaign to never get to the bargaining table, it means that the day that you win, you're, the workers are ready, as I said, they're already ready to like to go home, take a nap, celebrate, and then come back to a, a really important meeting four days from now. Because we're going to start planning the second phase of the campaign, which is how we're going to force the employer to get to the table. It's certainly what we did in Philadelphia and what I laid out in the chapter on Philadelphia and emphasize this part a bit more. We were facing in the negotiations in 2016 what became in the EPI report, uh, Economic Policy Institute report. I mean, I, I, I always said to people, I knew that we had a lot of union busters in the campaign. I didn't know how many. And then a report came out two and a half years later showing it was 1.1 million. It was one of the highest expenditures there was in the whole U.S. against a union, against a thousand nurses. I was like, oh, okay, that's what those 18 guys cost, 1.1 million. Anyway, so, you know, they sued the board for colluding with us. They sued the union for cheating. Yeah, I mean, they, it was like everything you've heard today. And this is 2016. You know, I said, the workers looked at the fact is there are two things that have to happen immediately. One is you have to demonstrate majority support immediately for the union. And this would have been true. This would be true at JFK. This would be true in a lot of places right now. Like you have to actually be able to show that a supermajority of the workers are united in their demand. And that is going to be really important in the public or community campaign that you're going to wage. Because the first thing the boss is going to say is a majority of workers here really don't want the union. A majority of workers, blah, 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 because they're going to they're going to take the total number of votes. They're going to subtract the yes votes. They're going to subtract the no votes. They're going to add in the people who didn't vote. And they come up with this fuzzy math. They've been coming up with it for 50 years that somehow says a majority never said they wanted the union, which can technically be true. And if you use that lens for American democracy or British democracy or any other goddamn election, but, you know, no one's won an election in thousands of years by that standard. But anyway, so the first thing that you've got to do is show a really strong demand to get to negotiations right away and speak to it. Right. So for me, it's always a simple petition. We voted to form our union. We demand the employer gets to the table right away. And that's you're starting to educate your base. You're doing a majority petition across the workplace. That is then setting you up to start going out to the broader allies that, by the way, you have to identify. You have to identify them correctly. Not all players in our community are equal, just like not all workers in a workplace campaign are equal. Some actually have more power than others. We want to go out and build a community campaign that targets who are those players who can bring a city council to the fight, who can bring a mayor to the fight, who are the relationships that the workers have, in the case of Philadelphia, still a Black city, still a high-functioning powerhouse Black church. And about half of the workers were Black nurses who lived in Philly, and about half were white workers who lived in the suburbs. Well, the Black workers inside of Philadelphia, we set out immediately, once we achieved the majority petition, by the way, because the boss was running that message every day, a majority of these nurses did not vote for the union. That was their message to the to the media. And I was like, okay, well, we just have to do a giant majority petition and, and show the boss is lying, not try to refute it with the media, but just show it, right? And then you have to take that, and that once we, once we can prove and show signatures or photos in a huge majority, that the employer is lying, so it's important to strip the boss of what they believe is the truth that they're telling, 
you know, knock them down uh, on the credibility ladder by showing a majority petition and then strategically approaching the people by doing a power structure analysis that your base is connected to that can actually bring the right people in the community to the demand. Now, I think that plays out everywhere except perhaps with Starbucks, where they obviously have very small workplaces and they're scattered. And, you know, I don't know enough about the strategy. Um, Obviously, it's been really exciting work, but the piece that the Starbucks campaign is missing and the piece that a bunch of liberal philanthropists should have fixed a long time ago, let alone a bunch of unions, by the way, but either one can be equally bad with their decision making sometimes about where they're spending their money, is we've needed and need an effective, strong, dynamic, powerful, led by organizers, new consumer union in the United States. Like that is going to be a fundamental role to enable some of the newly organizing workers. We need a really strong national consumers organization run by smart organizers. So that's a missing piece in the power analysis from my view, but it doesn't mean it doesn't mean that the Starbucks folks can't force the employer to the table. I mean, I think they're getting closer, but I'm still cautioning that what I'm watching in general with all the new organizing is still too much focused on like Jennifer Bruzzo, Lawfare, the board, thinking that will be saved by some bargaining order. We're never saved by an order to bargain because it just gets appealed. You know what I mean? So all the energy by all these workers must, must be on who are the allies that we can bring into this fight with us immediately. In Philadelphia, you know, we set a goal and I'll stop on this, but we set a goal just because I've been around this rodeo so many times of literally forcing the employer to withdraw their legal charges. Now, people at the time said to me, you're nuts. Like, no, no one's going to withdraw their charges. We have to just beat them. You know, somehow over there, Mac Levy with the workers, talking with the lawyers and stuff. And they were like, that's a crazy demand. We'll keep playing out the legal side, but you just keep trying to get the workers going, you know, and force them some other way. And I was like, yeah, that's fine. But objectively, the demand, our demand in public in our first majority petition and with policymakers in the region is going to be to force the CEO to withdraw the charges because that's the only way that we know they're going to really get the F out of the way and get serious about negotiations. And the workers did it. We did it. I just remember the lawyers after the third appeal, the lawyers saying to me, wow, okay, well, we didn't think we'd ever see an employer actually withdraw their charges because that was our demand. So make the demand real and build a credible plan to achieve it. There are different possibilities of power that we use, and it's based on analyzing the structures of power of each one of these fights and the communities in which they're in, but it's not about hoping that a bargaining order from the labor board is gonna fix the problem for us. Yeah, so I have, this is probably a little bit of a wonky one, but I'm obsessed with it right now because we're seeing sort of independent unions like the ALU sort of saying we can't collect dues because we don't have a contract, One of the case studies that you write about, the MNA, which I've also done a bunch of reporting on recently, thanks to Jane, doesn't rely on the employer to collect dues for them. And so it's not a question of getting dues check off into a contract. So I wonder, this is a little in the weeds, but I'm fascinated by it. What are sort of pros and cons of asking workers to pay dues of some sort before you have a first contract? I think it's great. I think it's a great pro It's brilliant what they're doing, that the employer has no idea who's a member of that union. So when they say we're going to strike, the employer has no idea 
like what's about to happen to them. But anyway, whether it's Amazon or any number of these places, I think it's a, you know, invoking the best of Cesar Chavez. I think that asking people to pay for the organization that they need to build from day one is essential. But again, it needs to be done as part of a, it's not a standalone conversation. I mean, most trade unions make a mistake. I was just correcting a union in another country looking at their recruitment, which is what they call the recruitment materials yesterday. And I said, yeah, no, you don't separate recruitment from the issues the workers are trying to win on and the campaigns that you need to run. So what dues ask up front in the case of a newly organized workplace like an Amazon or something would be to say, great, beat the boss. That was incredible. Now, step two is we're going to have to force them to the table. And to do that, we need some resources. And it's going to take each of us pulling our both financial and some time, right, resources, human time, to force this employer to the table. You know, so let's start by signing an authorization card right now. I mean, the weird thing about a banking system that I would like to blow up first, um, you know, (laughs) if we had the choice um, of what to go first, is that there's so many easy ways. I Venmo, I mean, you can collect money so many ways right now. It's it's It actually really enables what you're asking about, which is how can we get workers to avoid ever letting the boss become their banker? I mean, that's what unions functionally do. And the trade-off for people who, who don't know this, and very few do, so let's just say it, the reason why most, like 99% of union contracts in the United States have what's called the no strike, no lockout clause, meaning you can't strike and the employer won't lock you out until the contract expires, is the trade-off is employer dues deduction. That's the historic, like when you're a young negotiator, first thing you're taught about key articles in a contract is, well, when you surrender, no strike, no lockout, that's that's when the boss will surrender and give you employee deduction. Well, how did we grow up? giving the employer payroll deduction and are becoming our banker for like surrendering the right to strike. Really? Yeah. That's lose, lose. That is lose, lose sister. So, so even in, let's go back to your example of high turnover, which again, I'm basically arguing all of America's high turnover at this point. So I don't want to hear no bullshit from people about, well, it doesn't work here because we're high turnover. Stop. Just stop. Do the work, find the leader, build the power, do the work. It's I've been in, you know, I've worked with every practically kind of worker at this point, and there's always been high quote unquote turnover. I mean, not in these old legacy shops, right? Not in a, not in a UAW shop where four generations work, but in my life, in our lifetime, right? Yeah. Well, and how many of those UAW shops still exist? But even more, it's like the whole lifespan of my tenure as an organizer, um, which is now getting a little bit long from getting old, but like the whole tenure, I've been in high, t- what we would characterize as higher turnover environments, right? So I'm just going to say, it's not, we just need to strip excuses that people are making for doing the work that's hard yeah. and good and methodical and take some resources. So it's, it's good to say to workers, look, we can do this. And part of what this book is trying to show, again, like most of my books try to show is A, here's six or seven great examples of how workers, a lot like you just did this. Here's the steps they took to do it. Literally like do this, do that, do this. And this is this seems to lead to victory. And it's a great argument for why we should start asking members to build independent due structure. Because even someplace where to, to move them to direct dues was either a credit card. Now that's where mass nurses were a little bit different because they were a slightly higher income. And a lot of them had credit cards. A lot of workers I worked with, by the way, didn't. 
you need or still work with, right? So, but in the old days when all their the only option was like a bank draft or a credit card, that was a little bit limiting to do a direct use approach with a high turnover workplace. It's not true anymore with the simple ways that you can click um, money from your phone, you know, into a into a bank account in something called your organization. There's a lot of easy ways to do it right now transactionally. And then there's a lot of important ways structurally with good principles to say, we need to be viewing the immediate payment of dues as a structure test on do workers understand what it's going to take to build this union going forward to even get to the negotiations table. And by the way, the great thing about this approach is that we're never going to have to trade off no strike language when we do start negotiating our contract because we're going to have an alternative due system built and we're no longer going to let our employers be our bank. Yeah. Yeah. So that brings us to the strike. You know, every anti-union campaign is like two things, right? Your union just wants your dues money and your union's going to force you to strike. So talk about the strike threat and the strike reality. What's nerve wracking is the Supreme Court as usual at the moment, but we don't have a lot of time to talk about that. The strike threat is essential. I mean, if you want to win a life-changing contract, if you want to have public policy made through a collective bargaining agreement in a way that does actually change people's lives, like materially, measurably, then you're probably going to have to be ready to have a pretty serious strike. And it's probably going to have to be in a fair amount of cases in the United States right now. And this is certainly true elsewhere. You're going to have to have the willingness, the level of organization that's going to get you ready for potentially an illegal strike. And there's going to be a lot more of that coming, I think, after the U.S. Supreme Court is done with this session. So it isn't just getting strike ready. It's getting illegal strike ready, which means you really better be super, super majority and you better have lined up the community before you walk out that door to be an active supporter of the strike that's going to come. Right. All that work has to happen before anyone walks out the door. If you can't have what we call a credible strike threat, you're simply not going to make the kind of gains you want to in a contract. So there's a direct through line between involving members using transparency, electing a big committee, inviting all of the workers. In my case, I target the most skeptical workers to to get invited into the room in the process because I've never not had the most skeptical, bordering on anti-union workers change their mind about the union once they walked into the negotiations room, if they were only even ever there for just two hours, their entire conception of this concept we use, not third party in the union, which means the boss tries to say, there's the boss, there's the workers, and there's the union. Nothing eliminates that, nothing. And then thus prepares them to support something like a strike call. Then workers walking in, and in our case, seeing dozens or hundreds of their co-workers sitting around a room negotiating for better and fair workplace rules, not just better pay and better benefits, um, but actually how does the day-to-day workplace work, right? That like controlling production, some fantasy we used to have, like we do that in collective bargaining when we're strong, right? We change the production process in ways that work better for workers and again, the, whoever the consumer is. So to get to a credible strike threat, And to be able to have a really massive strike, the more workers understand what's been taking place throughout the entirety of the collective bargaining process, 
the better prepared you're going to be when people say it's time for a strike vote. So there's a we need a we need a credible strike threat and probably a good strike if we're going to go for it on questions of pensions or retirement or or staffing levels, whether it's educators or nurses or everyone needs better staffing levels. Right. I mean, baristas and everyone needs. I mean, Capital's favorite pastime now is, you know, working people to the bone, just cutting more and more workers everywhere I go. I hear the same thing. Why are these workers going to go on strike? Because they keep cutting positions. and Everyone's being asked to do triple the work. You're going to need a good strike. And I'm going to argue the best way to get there is if the workers have been deeply involved throughout their entire collective bargaining process, they're going to you're going to get to strike ready and they're going to be ready to make the case and bring in their community in a way that a top down gag order, small room, don't talk to the workers, which is what 97 percent of American unions do. That ain't going to help you get to the kind of strike that you need. Jane McAlevey's ideas about organizing at work remind me of a reporting trip I took several years ago to document the experiences of hotel housekeepers in Miami during spring break and Unite Here's efforts to organize and advocate for them in a racially polarized city full of precarious workers. So while I was following around these union organizers, I saw how beyond the initial unionization campaigns, they treated organizing as really the warp and weft of their everyday interactions with members, whether they were having casual conversations with workers during their lunch break or helping them navigate the grievance process with HR or training workers to become full-time organizers themselves. And mind you, I don't think this union was practicing the full-on kind of union democracy that Jane champions in her book. But I do think that their approach to organizing spoke to the idea of the union as a civic community. It reflected a concept of labor organizing as an exercise in self-determination and self-governance by workers. And I think the practices that Jane talks about here speak to a sense of communal engagement that is often overlooked or taken for granted when we talk about labor victories. As Jane points out in the conversation and in her reporting for The Nation, there's always a lot of buzz about the big sexy union wins, like a streak of successful NLRB elections at Starbucks, for instance, or, of course, a big winning vote at an Amazon warehouse. And of course, those wins make for splashy headlines. And I have to acknowledge here that my colleagues in the media are guilty of contributing to the somewhat sensationalistic reporting that focuses on these tangible gains, like a vote tally. But we also need to remember that NLRB wins are kind of a legal and bureaucratic construct. They're an important test for the union, but the work of organizing is never really over as long as the union is charged with representing, defending, and uplifting the workers it serves and is constantly facing down anti-union management and the structures and institutions of capitalism. As Jane writes for The Nation, quote, the high energy organizing work never stops from the first conversations among workers considering a union all the way to winning the hard fight for a first contract, unquote. Some newly minted unions, she noted, faltered in the past when they took their foot off the gas pedal after the initial election win. She wrote that unions often left the work of negotiating the first contract, quote, to inexperienced, newly organized rank and file workers or to less than competent staff representatives who weren't intent on teaching workers what it takes to win and how to build workplace power and organization during the campaign for a first contract, unquote. 
An open democratic bargaining process is not just a way to put the management on edge or a tokenistic gesture. It's part of a practice of solidarity and a path to raising consciousness in a workplace that is likely to be structured to keep workers atomized and socially isolated from each other and alienated from the production process itself. Jane mentioned how engaging workers fully in the bargaining process can make them feel more invested in their union and can give them a real stake in the outcome of the process. It's not just organizing for organizing's sake. These so-called high-powered negotiations are an arena in which workers can commit politically and intellectually to improving their working conditions for the collective good. They might even start working to change their working conditions in order to improve the broader community outside of work. The crux of bargaining for the common good is precisely this type of enlightened self-interest in contract negotiations, in which workers leverage their power in the workplace to improve the lives of the people around them, their families, their students, their local institutions. When Jane mentioned that collective bargaining was historically a place where workers could exert significant control over the actual rules that govern production, I was reminded of something that I teach about in my labor history class, which is the concept of workers' control. And some of you may know the David Montgomery book that I assigned to my students, which looks at how this concept has evolved over the decades. The form of control that workers have tried to claim or exert has varied over time. It's generally been contingent on the evolving culture of industrial work, separation between so-called skilled and unskilled work, and the technological and operational shifts that gave employers increasing control over the production process. While the bargaining for the common good framework is relatively new, this idea of bargaining on subjects beyond the so-called bread and butter issues of wages and benefits, well, that was a core part of early trade unionism, going back to the 19th century, because workers wanted to actually control the work itself. They wanted to shape the production process to set the time and pace of their job, and they wanted to participate in what they viewed as a form of economic democracy to the extent that it could be practiced under industrial capitalism. And they wanted to wrest control from their bosses. Over time, that vision of workplace democracy yielded to a more pragmatic approach that essentially sacrificed worker control in favor of more material gains. And union leadership became more professionalized and bureaucratized, and we eventually ended up with the sort of business unionism that is all too familiar today. Thinking about that historical backdrop, it seems like Jane's call for a democratization of organized labor echoes a historical vision about not just improving labor conditions, but using work as a vehicle for exerting power, whether on the shop floor or in one's neighborhood. The concept of a truly self-financed union that doesn't rely on the employer as a banker for their dues, of an open bargaining process rather than one that is controlled by lawyers and business agents, These are all efforts at reshaping people's relationship to work so that workers and their unions are able to exercise agency and sovereignty so that work is not just about subjecting yourself to the whims of your boss and defending whatever crumbs you were given in the last contract, but asserting your autonomy and your authority over the work itself. After all, when you and your coworkers stop working, your workplace stops working too. Like Jane said, workers have to show the management that they're smarter, that they know more about their economic contributions than the bosses do, and that they know how to shut the whole thing down. But in order to do that, unions need to show workers what they're truly worth and commit to helping them realize it. That's all for this episode of Belabored. Thanks again for tuning in, and thanks again to Casey and Natasha for helping us sound good. You can get all of our archived episodes in the show notes at dissentmagazine.org and Again, you can also support our independent journalism by contributing to our Patreon at patreon.com slash belabored. And you can get some free swag to go with that when you sign up to become a sustaining member. And of course, we want to hear your feedback. 
please get in touch with us if you have any ideas on what kinds of work or organizing strategies you'd like to see us highlight in future episodes. You should also definitely get in touch if you're working towards your first union contract right now or if you're still in the process of trying to organize your workplace and you have frustrations or tips to share. If you just went on strike or if you just got fired for trying to organize at work, we want to hear from you too. You can email us at belabored at dissentmagazine.org or you can reach us on the Twitters at hashtag belabored. See you in two weeks. You've been listening to Descent Magazine's belabored podcast. For the entire archive of past episodes, visit descentmagazine.org. Join us online using hashtag belabored.